I'm Doug Wells. Hi, I'm Roger Goldman. Welcome to Mountain Money. There are as many as 44 million AR-15s in private hands in the United States today. Given a population of 335 million people, that's about one AR-15 for every seven Americans or one for every three households. AR-15s have been at the center of almost all of the many mass shootings in the United States in the last 20 years. So how do we get here? How did this light, rapid-firing weapon come to be developed? How and why have efforts to regulate the weapons repeatedly failed? And just what kind of damage have we seen wreaked by AR-15s in places like Las Vegas and Uvalde? Cameron McMurder and Zusha Allenson have written a new book entitled American Gun, The True Story of the AR-15. We're lucky that they're both on the phone with us this morning. Good morning and welcome to Mountain Money. Thanks a lot. Thanks for having us. Um, we are thrilled to be here. Cameron, let's start with you. Why, why did you guys write the book and how long did it take to do the research? Uh, well, we've been at it for uh, time kind of blurs because of COVID, <laughs> as you can imagine. But uh, I guess four years. Uh, we we are both reporters at the Wall Street Journal. So I am with the U.S. News section based in Atlanta. So unlike you, I haven't seen snow in a long time. <laughs> uh, and um, Zusha is based in San Francisco and uh, for U.S. News. And so we have been covering a lot of mass shootings. And... Uh, at one point, because we are the Wall Street Journal or a business paper, we wrote a bit. We, we decided because we kept seeing the AR-15 pop up at a lot of the mass shootings, Las Vegas, you mentioned, was was the worst. Uh, we set out to do a story, a business story about the AR-15 rifle and its uh, its prominence in gun industry profits. And that story led us to really learn this fascinating history about the gun and going back to the cold war and we just thought this is a this is a story that america needs to hear uh to understand this broader issue uh of what happens when technology enters our culture what how does it take on a life of its own and, and do things that the inventor never intended yeah and let's let's talk about the inventor tell us a little bit about eugene stoner and and what was he trying to accomplish when he originally designed the ar-15 and and how was the ar-15 back then different from other available rifles that's a that's a really long story you should write a book about it but i would <laughs> say that um I, it starts with eugene stoner who was a a a aircraft uh, worker in Los Angeles, didn't go to college, self-taught, and he was living in um, in a you know a classic uh, lower middle class, working class neighborhood, you know, uh, uh, ranch homes. And then he would go to his after he came home from work every day, he would go to his garage and tinker with guns. And he really wanted to. He was working in the aircraft industry, which was starting to use things like aluminum and plastics that uh, to make uh, aircraft lighter so that it could fly easier and he thought why don't we use these for guns because traditionally guns had always been really heavy mm. and with lots of parts and during the cold war there was a real interest in by the u.s military in getting a lighter gun so that soldiers for for one primary reason was to carry more ammunition into the field and they were competing against a, a new type of rifle that was starting to spread around the world by the Soviets, which was the AK-47. So. You know, one of the th interesting things about sort of your characterization of Stoner, as I was reading the book, I was thinking about 
he, he reminded me of the Wright brothers in the sense of someone without a big technical background messing around in his garage. Their legacies are rather different, I suspect. But let's talk a little bit about what was remarkable about the AR-15. And I think one of the things that I, I think I've got it, although it was pretty technical as you guys wrote about it, is this implication of using gas to sort of uh, set up the next round. Have I got that right? Yeah, absolutely. And, and that is part of that. The whole idea was to make the gun lighter. And again, as you, he, he is sort of, he is your classic inventor, your classic American inventor. And he is like Steve Jobs. He's like the Wright brothers. He's just tinkering around in his garage because he thinks he has good ideas. And he, and one of his ideas is because of these new materials, plastics and plastic and aluminum and fiberglass, you can, you can remove some metal parts that a lot of traditional guns had. Now, I don't know if you guys ever saw, uh, Saving Private Ryan. You ever see that movie? Oh yeah. So the the soldiers who are, are the American soldiers who are fighting in in a lot a lot of the soldiers in that um, movie were using an M1 rifle, which was the classic rifle that American soldiers carried into World War II. Great rifle, really heavy, really heavy gun. It obviously was a great rifle. We won, so that was good. But the but it was very heavy, and everyone was thinking, we need lighter, we need lighter, we need lighter. And so his idea was, if we could just create, you know, there were, there were parts in that gun that had a metal rod that had to go, you know, had to, every time a gun was fired, every time the gun was fired, the bullet would expel gas, but then have to move a bunch of parts to, to inject and put it in a new, new round. Stoner's idea was, why don't we just have the gas do it if we just have a little tube and it's way light. it's much lighter. So that was one of his primary innovations. He had multiple innovations, but that was one of them. But the whole idea was make it lighter, use ammunition that's lighter, and and this whole notion that people, the military had had, that people going into combat need to be expert riflemen because they're take you know they're like John Wayne, you know they're standing there carefully focusing on the enemy and and pulling the trigger. When in truth. After a lot of studies, after World War II and Korea, uh, a lot of military experts had come to the conclusion that people were just, that isn't how people fight, because you're terrified, because people are, understandably, soldiers, people are trying to kill them, and they're trying to kill someone else, so it's very terrifying, and they just sort of spray in the direction of the enemy. So if you have more lead to do that, you generally win. That was the sort of the simple logic of it. And just so that our audience can follow up with this concept of spraying, what the gas enabled the rifle to do was to create a rapid fire of multiple bullets, which was really a big step forward, wasn't it? Well, it could. Well, I mean, there were rapid fire guns prior to this, but this allowed that to take place with much less parts. Okay. So it also is easier to make. It's cheaper to make. It's easier to theoretically to clean i mean vietnam had some problems but it's the, it's easier to clean and repair for the soldier and again they can carry way more ammunition into the field yeah more ammo and it's more dependable the fewer parts the more now, dependable all those design I things that i've just talked about are fantastic for when the gun works well it's fantastic for soldiers unfortunately it also makes it incredibly easy for anyone to pick this gun up and shoot it rapidly very quickly whether they have experience with the gun or not okay we're gonna we're gonna get to the civilian application here in just a second but before we go there um i want to share 
every time anybody mentions the word gun, you guys are making me nervous because having been to college on a military scholarship, um, use the word gun in the military and you're doing 20 push-ups. Uh, and after, <laughs> after a while, you're doing 100 push-ups. So uh, I, I will use the term weapon. Uh, okay. And, and I, I think that uh, particularly when we talk about what's happening in the civilian world with it, the word weapon uh, is more appropriate. But I, I, I want to stay with the Air 15 and its commercial success, if, if you will uh, yeah, indulge sure. me just for a second. The, the term AR-15, uh, there's a company behind it, right? And it's, it's uh, yeah, the AR absolutely. stands for Armalite Rifle. Absolutely, Talk to yeah. us about how difficult it was for uh, Stoner to get mass adoption in the, uh, in the U.S. military for it. Did, did the military pull this along, or was, did Stoner have to push this and really put in a lot of energy to make it the standard that it is today? It was, it was an incredibly difficult, um, long saga for the gun to be adopted eventually by the military. And when they did finally adopt it, they, they in, the, in the military's um, logic, renamed it the M16, um, which stands for Model 16. <laughs> uh, pretty straightforward. <laughs> But uh, AR-15 stands for Armalite, and it was the 15th creation of the small company that Stoner had attached himself to based in, in Southern California that was a subsidiary of an aircraft company. And the aircraft company, uh, Fairchild, thought, well, we, if we set up a small arms maker, in a, you know, it will be sort of like um, a little startup. And if we can get military contracts, we can make it big. And that was the whole plan for the AR-15. It was going to be a military gun that our allies and the United States military could use in the Cold War. And it did do that, but it was a long saga because the bureaucracy, the military bureaucracy, really fought it. They, they had their own gun, which was a much heavier version, had more parts. It was slightly lighter than the M1 that I talked about earlier, but it was still... Um, pretty heavy and there were elements of the military who were really terrified that we were about to send our soldiers and our allies out to fight against the kalashnikov gun and we just a weapon as you would say and we just aren't gonna it's just not gonna match up so they began a process of sort of secretly trying to get stoner to his gun to be tested and it was tested in various places there are lots of stories that we have in the book where the military elements of the military tried to undercut his testing, you know, falsify testing and corrupt testing so that his gun would not be adopted. But eventually, uh, as Vietnam is ramping up, the gun is finally adopted. Okay, so, so that's the story of the military application. Uh, we're going to convert over to civilian. Before we do, I just, I just want to share with the audience that, you know, that the uh, M16 has saved thousands, if not tens of thousands, of U.S. soldiers' lives. I mean, your weapon is what allows you to accomplish your mission, and it's also oftentimes what allows you to keep alive. So it's in its intended purpose, it's really done a great job. But now it's being marketed to civilians. Talk to us about how that began. Well, it's a really interesting saga that begins... Well, the, the, the gun was marketed 
Colt finally got a contract with the U.S. military, and, and it made made tons of money supplying the M16 to the U.S. military in Vietnam and beyond. At the same time, they made a, 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 a civilian version, which could only shoot, uh, only had a magazine that would hold five rounds, and they would, they tried to market it to people as sort of a hunter's rifle, a light right rifle to shoot gophers and farmants and it really didn't work people didn't weren't very interested in it when the gun went out of pat out of uh patent they started there were a couple of small companies that started to try to market the gun and initially they have and we have this in the book there's a lot of resistance by traditional gun owners who just thought this is a plastic piece of junk this isn't your traditional heavy wood you know, polished rifle, why would I want this gun? That all starts to change in the in the 80s and particularly in the 90s as survivalists start to rise up and start to buy the gun and see it as sort of a military, um, a military style gun that they like. Now, we should point out the M16, the military version of the gun can fire semi-automatic, which means every time you pull the trigger, one round comes out, or it can flip and fire automatic, which you hold down the trigger and the, the gun just cycles through all the, the rounds in the magazine. The civilian version of the gun can only fire semi-automatic. Now, having said that, as you've served in the military, you know, sergeants <laughs> for generations have yelled at their soldiers not to um, fire automatic unless it's absolutely a desperate situation because you want to preserve your ammunition. So almost every soldier who was fighting or Marine who was fighting in Iraq or Afghanistan with an M16 or later versions of the rifle is firing semi-automatic. So, but that gun started to gain in popularity and then we had all the political battles of the 90s with uh, the, the assault weapons ban and that really sparked interest in a lot of people who felt that uh, particularly the Democratic Party was going after guns. And so everyone's this became it became a political football between Republicans and Democrats. And it's sparked sales. And it's not a very expensive rifle. Uh, you can buy it pretty cheaply and sales skyrocketed. And, and just to, to put a fine point on it, although it I understand it was marketed to be semi-automatic only uh, uh, well let me ask you this are they still marketed to be semi-automatic only or do you have to do something to change it if you do something to change it you are breaking the law i, I um, understand but does yeah. it, <laughs> having said <laughs> but, that but, <laughs> um, now come so, on roger you're an attorney <laughs> yeah if you if you if you make it fire automatic you are breaking the law uh, uh there you know I so in theory uh no you cannot that being said, you can fire a lot of rounds. As uh, all the all the horror stories that, that you referenced at the beginning here, they're all um, that was all semi-automatic fire, and you can pop a lot of rounds very quickly by just pulling the trigger. Uh, uh, it's very simple to do, and the ability to get magazines that are 30, 40, 50, these drum things which don't work that well of a hundred rounds. You know, you can really cause a lot of damage. And I think um, it's important to note, as I said earlier, like the, the gun is designed for ease. 
And that's great for a soldier. That's great for soldiers, for our soldiers fighting overseas, uh, defending our country, great. But it's also great for a the guy, the kid in Uvalde, who'd never fired a gun before that day, to walk into a school and wreak havoc. Yeah, and let's, you know, part of the problem here, as Roger mentioned in the open, is one, you know, there's as many AR-15 sold in America that have has been sold in the past, one in that it ends up being one in three households. Now, I'm sure some households have five or six and other households like mine have zero. Uh, but how did it end up being marketed so successfully? I mean, I doubt there's one in three households in America that have an iPhone. Might be. Maybe, but, you know, yeah. Apple is a marketing machine. How, how did well, they the end up industry, selling so many? Yeah, I mean, the gun industry, real, there were whole, uh, several things came together, a confluence of various things in the early 2000s. So there was this assault weapons ban. Importantly, uh, that spiked sales and interest by a lot of gun owners. The, the key thing about the assault weapons ban, and we write about this in the book, is that the gun ban didn't really work because gun companies thought they were ruined. They thought, oh, we can't sell our AR-15s anymore. But they simply made modifications to the letter of the law, sent it off to the federal government. The federal government said, okay, you can sell these new versions and just started selling them again. And there were a few modifications made, but sales grew throughout the assault weapons ban. But at the same time, you've told Americans, you can't have this. So that ban was set for 10 years. And in 2004, after 9-11, when Americans saw our soldiers standing at our airports, standing at our train stations, holding M16s, the gun was, you know, veterans coming home, wanting a similar version of that rifle. And it was no longer had any sort of uh, stigma attached to it from Vietnam or earlier. And so people wanted this gun. And at the same, and then the, the Republican-led Congress lifted the ban in 2004. And so then gun sales went crazy. And everyone was buying one. And then you had uh, the election with Barack Obama, who was very cautious about um, talking about Second Amendment rights during his campaign because he, he, in part, because he didn't want to offend hunters in Michigan and Ohio. But he was very cautious in that election. But it didn't matter because the NRA was screaming, this guy's going to take your guns. And sales went through the roof. And not to, not to carry all the way forward, but I mean, that then we've had these horrible shootings. Sandy Hook was was one of the worst. Um, and everyone's, because they think there's going to be an assault weapons ban, sales would spike. And the gun companies absolutely marketed to that. If they knew that if there was either a political situation or a mass shooting, their sales would spike and they would ramp up production to meet demand. What, 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 what has been the argument, for, for those of us who are not sort of real gun people, uh, what has been the argument as to why sportsmen or hunters need an AR-15? Well, I think, at the, uh, I think that's a great question. And I think the answer really is, is much more visceral. It's not, um, I mean, you wouldn't take an AR-15 with, with the type of bullet, you know, the 223 round, the typical round for that gun, 
and go and shoot up a deer because it would destroy the meat. I mean, you wouldn't, wouldn't be worth it. So it's really not a hunting rifle, but it is a rifle that um, many people have been told they can't have. And it is a gun that people do target shooting with and things like that, but it's really a gun that became something that if you were pro-Second Amendment, and we read about this extensively in the book, if you were pro-Second Amendment, you bought an AR-15 as a, as a political statement. And you can see um, on bumper stickers, I'm sure if you drive around your neighborhood, you'll see somebody with a bumper sticker that has a silhouette of an AR-15 and maybe the phrase something like, come and take it, mm -hmm. which has become a political battle cry. On January 6th, they were waving flags announcing that. So it's become this political statement. And for, you know, 800 bucks, 600 bucks, 1,000 bucks, you can have one. So let's, let's you know, we're, it's 9.30 a.m. here in, in Park City and we're a family show. And so I, I don't want to go into the gory details. Right. But, you know, the AR-15 was used in Sandy Hook and it was used in Las Vegas. Let's take one of those. Let's take Las Vegas. And again, without going into the, the, the goriness of it, talk to us about how the AR-15 made those travesties even worse. Right. Um, I mean, um, I'll, I'll, uh, obviously, there, there, the, the goriness is, is sort of implicit in all of this, but the, the, By the, the way, gun, we're only a six-hour drive from Las Vegas. Right, and I know several right. people that were there that day. So, yeah. I mean, that's, and, 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 you know, in the book, we have victims of these events talking about what they've gone through. Uh, for years afterward, the trauma, mental trauma, plus the physical damage. Um, but that gun, the rapid fire, it, it's a rapid fire, high velocity weapon. So that makes it very easy to just fire rounds really, really quickly. Now, the, sh the shooter in Las Vegas also had attached a device called a bump stock, which uh, mimics automatic fire. But he had the sole purpose of, of hurting and killing as many people as he could that day. We still aren't exactly sure why. But he also had money and he had been purchasing all these rifles within a certain period of time. He bought tons of them, but there were no red flags that would go off to, to block him from doing that because he didn't have a felony. And he just lined the guns up and had them all ready at the hotel window when he started shooting. And it wasn't shooting at a target. Uh, as I talked about earlier, you know, these, the gun uh, is designed to fire a lot of rounds because you are, you know, if you're in the jungle or you're somewhere fighting um, and you see fire coming from a direction, you're going to fire a lot of rounds back at that direction without really focusing on, on a particular target necessarily. And this gun allows you to do that. You can fire a lot of rounds. And he was just spraying into a crowd, a massive crowd there, simply to listen to a rock, you know, a country music show, country concert. So he didn't care who he hit. He didn't care who he hurt that day. It didn't matter to him. He just wanted to hurt society. And as we write about in the book, there are, this gun 
has has drawn lots of people. Uh, yes, we were describing you know, it's tons of people on this gun. The vast majority of those people aren't out to hurt anybody. They just like guns or they want to make a political statement or whatever. But because so many people have purchased this gun and there's so many, um, it's so easy to get now. There are small, there's in that Venn diagram, that giant circle, there's a small circle of people who are out to hurt other people. And this is the gun that draws them because it's, it's military looking, it's rapid fire, and, it, and that is what happened in Las Vegas. He had lined up AR-15s on his bed there. He also had a similar version, AR-10 rifles, some of them, which was also invented by Eugene Stoner, very similar rifle with a larger uh, caliber bullet. And he, um, he was out to just hurt, hurt society for whatever reason. We don't exactly know. But as we document in the book, there are people who, you know, are Islamic extremists or mentally ill or um, white supremacists or whatever, uh, who are drawn to this gun because they see it as a weapon to go to war with society. And that is certainly the absolute antithesis of what Eugene Stoner would have wanted when he invented this gun. We could talk for another half an hour, particularly about why it's been so difficult to try to have a regulatory approach to the guns or, and where we go from here, but we're out of time. Uh, I encourage our listeners to uh, check out this book, American Gun, The True Story of the AR-15. We've been talking to Cameron McMurder. Cameron, thanks for joining us this morning. We're going to switch gears now, and we're going to talk about the Heber Valley Resource Center and talk about the resources, the services, the training, and expertise that they offer small business owners and entrepreneurs. Peter Jay is the Director of Economic Development and BRC joins us this morning to to tell us more about this community resource. Peter, thank you for joining us this morning. Hi, thank you for having me on. So give us an idea, what type of small business services does the Heber Valley Business Resource Center provide? Well, we're typically supporting startup companies, about one to three-year-olds companies, and it can be in any, any industry. We don't just specifically focus on tech. We have a lot of tech companies that are in our business resource centers. And, but we have other, we have clothing startup companies, branding companies. We have a few AI companies in our Orem location. Um, our Orem location has about 30 businesses, but Heber Valley is a smaller location. We typically only get a few applications there a month. Um, Heber, Orem, we get out five to 10. Um, so Heber Valley, we haven't expanded as much because we haven't seen the, the demand as much. But if we do get more demand for small businesses there, we can expand it. It's in our, UVU building in Heber Valley, if you guys know the location, it's uh, in the north end of Heber Valley, the UVU building there. Uh, we have a large building there. We have one room allocated to co-working space and incubator space for small businesses. But anybody can apply. They can use the office space there. They can uh, use the conference rooms. Can I ask, is it just for Wasatch County residents or is it also for Summit County residents? No, Summit County residents could use it as well. It's open to whoever wants to apply and use the space if it's convenient for where they're located at. So, Can you give us a sense of, of the kinds of tech companies that we're seeing in the Valley? What kinds of things do they do? Um, we haven't got a whole lot in Wasatch. It's mainly Orem where most of our businesses are at. We're getting 
since ChatGPT Chat came out, we've actually had a quite a few AI companies, startups. Um, so people are just trying to automate different work services. We had some customer service AI companies, some email AI companies, and some others. I'm, I'm curious. One of the things that we're seeing more and more of here in Utah is what I call the creator economy. So maybe somebody has a YouTube channel, they're a TikToker, uh, something like that. Are there services available for folks like that? Do you have a podcast room or a video studio room? Yes, we do. So we, the way we've set it up, so we have our Orem Business Resource Center location and the Heber Valley Business Resource Center location. If you're a tenant or a member of either one, you can use all the services of the other. In our Orem location, we do have a podcast lab. We've got some nice cameras in there and some um, uh, some microphones and other things that they can use and a room set apart for it. So they can use that podcast lab if they're a member or they can um, pay to use it even if they're not a member. We don't charge much for it. So it is available to help people create YouTube and um, TikTok content and other things. So. You know, many universities uh, have end up having close relationships with small business development centers. Can you talk a little bit about the extent to which UVU is involved with sort of helping small businesses grow? Yes, we do have a relationship with the Small Business Development Center as well. It's actually located in our building in Orem. When we used to, before COVID, we used to send a, one of our consultants up to Heber Valley at least once a week to consult with businesses up there as well. And we can start doing that again if we see demand for it. Um, but we do have a small business development center there with several counselors. They give free one-on-one -on -one business consulting. Um, they'll help people with anything from um, creating your business plan, applying for loans and financing, marketing plans, um, assistance with legal help or accounting or anything else they need. So. And how, how difficult is the application process? And how likely is it if somebody goes through that process that they'll be accepted? What type of factors make one candidate successful and another one maybe not successful? Well, there's not much, there's not a difficult process to get help from one of our counselors. It's all free because it's government funded and university funded to help small businesses and grow the economy. It's funded by the SBA, the, the federal government. And then the UVU has a match to uh, help help with the program. So it's all free and it's to help small businesses. And so to get to get help, it doesn't, it's a simple process. Just call in and set up a meeting with one of our counselors. You can go to the website at you, just type in UVU BRC and a search engine and it'll come up or, or, or MSBDC. And you can set up a meeting with one of our counselors. They'll help you uh, with any, any business concerns you have. We also have students that can do market research if they're looking for help with that. But it's a simple process to get into the incubator um, we do have some qualifications for that where we do want it to be a startup about one to three years old, but yeah, so it's not too difficult to get in. Do you have any stories about businesses that have come through the center and grown to be successful? Yeah, we've had quite a few um, businesses in our Orem location. Um, like for instance, Pura, I don't know if you've heard of them. If you go to any of the uh, home shows where you see the scent dispensers in the homes, they're automated scent dispensers. So they were in our building in Orem for about three years as a startup company. They uh, made a smart home device as a scent dispenser and they prototyped it there using our 3D printing prototyping lab. And they also uh, went through our accelerator program to validate their idea and their product. And they're there for about three years and their product finally took off and they're a big successful company now and 
have a, they're in a big building in Pleasant Grove right now. So <laughs> they they are a big company. In fact, uh, I had a Pura as a gift for me under the uh, the Christmas tree this last holiday season. So <laughs> okay, they've, great. They've made it mainstream when uh, when I end up getting a scent. Uh, uh, and it's a smartphone application too. It's really pretty cool. Uh-huh. Uh, so one of the things too, it's it's not just a business center. It's also an incubator. And you know, being an entrepreneur can be lonely. And so one of the things about incubation, you know, you just that term is it keeps you warm. It keeps you safe when you're in this fragile environment. Uh, talk to us about that stage and how you can help somebody. When they're at the beginning stages, like a company like Pura, you know, there was a time where that was just an idea and ideas are fragile and you have to, you have to cherish them and protect them. How do you help entrepreneurs take it from an idea into something where they've got a team and, and they graduate out of the incubator? Yeah, it can be difficult as a, an entrepreneur it does get lonely. Even once your business is going and you're, you got a bunch of employees, I mean, you're the one that the buck stops with you and you're the one that has to hold all the weight for making payroll and all things like that. So it is nice to be able to incubator space with a bunch of other entrepreneurs who are going through the same um, experience. And I actually own a side business as well, so I'm in the thick of it myself, um, living that life. But it is helpful to be around other entrepreneurs, to share stories, hear what's hear helping, helping them be successful and how they're dealing with problems. Um, we do have a lot of classes as well where um, we have networking events where the entrepreneurs can meet together. We have a CEO circle that we do with all the owners of the businesses. We have a program called One Million Cups where we meet weekly with entrepreneurs in the mornings. That's at the Orem location as well. Uh, we, we, we could do more at the Heber Valley if we can get more applications there. So if people are listening and they want to get space there, we can add some more programming up there. Any, uh, any we do plans have some, to add anything in the, in the Park City area? Uh, we don't have anything, anything in Park City. U, UVU does have... Uh, Summit County is in the UVU region for universities, but not Park City itself, but the rest of Summit County is. Um, so we do need to have a, more of a presence in, in uh, Summit County. In my I show think, notes, and, uh, mentioned something about a possible Payson location. How's that coming along? Yes, we do. Payson is working with MTech to build a MTech building down there, and they wanted to put our business resource center incubator in that building, and they wanted to partner with us to help uh, manage the space since we've had about 10 years of running incubator spaces in the current location in Orem. And so we could just bring the existing resources down there to Payson as well and partner with them. So, I mean, potentially Summit County could do something like that as well and we could help with it. Okay, Peter, anything else you want to add before we go? Yeah, a couple more things. We do have a World Trade Center office in our business resource center in Orem. And again, anyone who's a member of the Wasatch campus can use that one as well. Um, so we help people with international trade, importing, exporting. Um, our prototyping lab, we do 3D printing and we can do electronic products with some of our um, electronic me- uh, fabrication equipment. We also have a artificial intelligence server. So if people are doing an AI project, they can do some training on our, do some inference training on our servers there. So we do, we do have quite a bit of resources. One last thing I'll say, um, you know, they always say like 90% of businesses fail, <laughs> but if entrepreneurs try a second, third or fourth time, their success rate actually increases dramatically. And so we always try to say, we try to provide the businesses, the lessons and training, the things they need to do to be successful on their first try or more successful on their 
other tries. So Yeah, there's a, a famous quote I'm paraphrasing, which is you only fail when you quit trying. So we'll, we'll leave it on that note. We've been speaking with Peter Jay of the Heber, Heber Valley Business Resource Center. Peter, thanks for joining us this morning. Shabu launched in 2004 when two brothers with culinary chops fell in love with Park City Life and decided to put down roots and dish up creative cuisine in an artful atmosphere. Joining us this morning are the brothers who started this all, Bob and Kevin Vileka. Gentlemen, welcome and congratulations. Thank Thanks you. for Good having morning. us. Take us to the beginning, 333 Main Street, the mall, the Main Street Mall. How did it all start? Well, we... Park City started, Chefs. Well, it started after the Winter Olympics. Bob was in Aspen, and we thought, wow, this would be an opportune time to do our own thing here. He was working for Nobu at the time, and then he moved here, and we started Park City Private Chefs. In 2003. Yep. And so we kind of put the cart before the horse and started a private chefing service, and one day we were in the mall, and we just said, we should start a restaurant here. <laughs> yeah, it was, uh, it was a deal of a century, to say the least. Um, the Wongs, which are a local family, um, Russell Wong, w uh, gave us the opportunity to go in there for like $10 an hour. All the equipment was in there. It was turnkey. Um, you know, it, it was a really, I mean, that's what saved us. It was our startup costs and how we were able to uh, get into the, restaurant business quickly, not paying an arm and a leg for rent. When we did it, we built everything our own. We would go to use equipment stores in Salt Lake and Las Vegas and filter through piles of, of equipment oh and just buy the you know, <laughs> functional equipment. And we did it all on our own. We didn't have a bank or an investor behind us. We kind of did it. I always like to say it was kind of like a Sundance movie for some. We just went for it. And we and built the clientele before we actually opened our doors. Um, we were gaining, you know, people's um, confidence in our food and in their homes, in their own homes. And word of mouth, one and we person in the next, and we, we just built a nice clientele before we opened up. So We were trained in Chicago, and the food scene in Chicago is awesome. And we knew that people would seek out the location didn't really matter to us. We knew if you provided a product that people loved, they'd find us. If you build it, they will come? Yes. Correct. <laughs> and uh, as I recall, that wasn't that big a space. How many tables did you have in the old uh, Main Street well, space? Well, it's, I want to say, at least 75. 75 people? Uh, yeah, it was, yeah, it was, it was bigger than our current location. And then when the we our, were our we first... Were able to, uh, to uh, have seating outside That's right. in the hallway That's right. when That's before right. the, the sidecar came in, yeah. which was the bar up there. That was Mike Wong's bar. Yes. And we loved it. Yes. The, the view from our windows was of the Egyptian theater. And, you know, we've since we've partnered with Randy and just support that. And, you know, we just, that location just really, uh, it stuck with us. You know, we just made it happen, you know, is... We were the only, there was a point there where we were the only tenant pretty much in the mall in 2008 <laughs> when the economy, Seriously. the commercial real estate economy collapsed. Um, and then that's when we said, hey, we need to get out of this and find a new location. And we searched and searched and searched and met JF Landverse mm -hmm. and um, took over our current location, um, you know, uh, and it's been great. We, we love it. Heart of Main Street. 
So there are a few people who I'm sure are listening who are not familiar with Shabu. Hard to believe. I know, but we're <laughs> going to do our job and just share with the listeners a bit about what they'd experience when they come into Shabu. Sure. Shabu is um, what we coined is freestyle Asian cuisine. And what that is, is Asian fusion. So it allowed me to, it gave me the freedom to be open with what I was offering as dishes and I was able to, you know, I could combine Mexican spices with Asian techniques, you know, using woks or, you know, hot pots or... Rocks. Hot rocks, yeah. I mean, it just really opened the door to many, wasn't just Asian Pacific Rim cooking. It really broadened my, you know, my spice rack, if you will, to other countries that, you know, that I can fuse with Asian cuisine. So it was a thing that kind of went hand in hand with being in a ski town, freestyle, freestyle kind of kind of clicked with me. And I was like, freestyle Asian cuisine, this is going to work, you know, and we made it happen. And uh, yeah, the rest is history. <laughs> the restaurant also features some pretty creative uh, alcohol concoctions. Um, that remain that, that that change as well, mm. Bob. But I wanted to ask you: there are some dishes that I know have been on that menu forever, and there are some dishes that you like to change up. Talk to us a little bit about that process, and, and do you um, need volunteers to sample the new dishes you plan to put on the menu? Yes, yes uh, we love that. I mean, <laughs> new dishes—you know—it's become the menu is pretty large to begin with, and that kitchen is very is fairly small, and we can only pump out so much. And our menu has to be—it can't be gigantic. It has to be workable because we have to you know production needs to come out quickly um but it's funny the 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 menu really reflects what people's palates in park city wanted um it's become now that if i try to take something off the menu people are like hey you know why did you take the hot pot off or why would you ever take the firecracker shrimp mm -hmm. or you know the list goes on the you know, the mushu duck which I actually did take off, and people are like losing their minds because they want it back on the menu. And I'm like, well, it kind of it, it halts my creativity a little bit because I want to put new exciting items on the menu, but I can only add so many items. So, but trust me, there'll be some new stuff coming down the pipe. So, I have to share with you a story that my children were watching the news about the BP oil spill, and they turned to me and said, how are they going to get the how are they going to get the rock shrimp at, at the Shabu? There was great concern in my house. Uh, that was a thing. <laughs> it still <laughs> exists. Um, ever since that happened, the price of rock shrimp doubled. And that is still, to this day, um, you know, a concern of ours. And it's, it really, it, it, that, those, t those type of shrimp, are so much plumper, juicier, more flavorful than your normal 7190. Um, and that was a real shame. And, you know, that we are still affected to this day, really? culinary-wise, with that oil spill, yeah. I know, you know, we're starting to get into a little bit of discussion about the challenges you've experienced being 20 years in the business. But one of the things I thought was going to be key to talk to you guys about is really how important the lifestyle is for you guys. A lot of people, when they start a new business, they get overwhelmed and they don't do what they meant to do, which is own the business and live that outdoor recreation lifestyle. Well, we make that a cornerstone of the whole concept, really. It's one of our pillars that we stand on. And it goes from how Bob and I and our families, how we live, all the way through our staff. We want to make sure that we've got employees that are involved in the community, on the mountain, in the forest, or whatever it is, um, 
being in the outdoors. So they can come in and tell their story with a smile on their face and goggle burn. And uh, fresh powder, very important to us. <laughs> that is like the most important thing, <laughs> was quite <there> honestly. <laughs> over the 20 years, was there ever a time for you guys personally to kind of maintain that or, or have you always been able to do that and help keep each other accountable? Oh, the opening years, I, the 2004, I didn't ski one day, <laughs> which Personal uh, last I squeeze, year we I squeeze had some days in for sure. Yeah. <laughs> you know, you compare that to last year where we were in the 80s, a number of days on the slopes. But um, yeah, no, we've always made sure to live in the mountains and work in the mountains. I mean, that's the only reason why I'm here. I mean, skiing was a number one priority for me. Once I graduated culinary school, I wanted to be out west and ride my mountain bike, you know, camping, water, people, whitewater rafting, you know. People ask us a couple times, they're like, oh, you should do this in Las Vegas, Miami, L.A. I've got a building, and it's just not appealing to us, to Bob and I, if we just, and our families just- Too much jumping like, around and-, and Yeah. We really, love Park know. City. Yeah. You know, just as there have been many dishes on the menu that have been there for a long time, and I suspect will be there for a long time, you guys have been remarkably successful at having staff remain in oh, that man. restaurant. I, I mean, mean we owe it all to the staff. There's no way we could have made it 20 years with the staff, without the staff that we have. And quite honestly, our employee turnover is like none, zero. Um, we create a nice work environment for everybody, um, I hope. Um, it, it shows because no one really leaves and, we have, and we're like a big family over there. And that is a huge, huge part of why our success in being 20 years old is. How do you do that? How, how do you guys, I mean, you know, we, we talk to a lot of restaurant owners and over the last couple of years, the consistent theme is I can't hold on to my staff. Mm -hmm. What do you guys think you do that's, what, that's different? What's the secret for success here? Well, the. <clears throat> The market has just gone crazy. We have to compete with St. Regis's and Montage and Vales and Altura. And for Bob and I to retain the employees, we just what we just talked about, we have to provide more than money. It's, it's a lifestyle. It's, uh, I mean, we spend a lot of time with our employees. We're out powder skiing and camping and, like I said, river running and... A lot of these guys work in our restaurant, and quite honestly, when we hire, we always ask that question, like, hey, you know, are you outdoorsy? Do you like to get outside and ski? And we call ourselves the Shabu Shredders, you know? <laughs> and uh, we just had a beer come out um, by Salt Fire, which is a microbrewery down in Salt Lake City, and the label's the Shabu Shredders. Now and we it know. has a skier on it, and it's pretty cool. C can we get those over at the restaurant? Yes, oh, you yeah. can. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It's just our independence. You know, we're not a corporation. We're far from that. Um, we just put a lot of love into it, and people feel it. You know, you've done some other interesting things to maintain your relationship with your customer base. I know that during COVID, you guys ran a series of uh, sort of Cook with Bob uh, yes. casts. I was doing that quite often. It was the only way to communicate and get out there to my uh, clients and my, my customers. Um, it was a tough time, you know, um, and I felt like that was the only way to get across, you know, with limitations that were obvious to all restaurants. It was crippling. Um, and it was kind of fun because I was in my house, locked in my house, and I 
just quite honestly, I just had remodeled my kitchen. I was like, this is perfect. <laughs> so we started doing it. I, what's that? How many of those did you do, Bob? Do you remember? I want to say 10, 10 to 20. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. people were getting into it. And I was like, maybe I should keep it going. And then the restaurant just came busier. And it, it's just, you know, it, that's my baby over there. So, you know, I got to take care of her. While we're getting close to the end, I do want to talk about just your location on Main Street. You know, you were at 333, now you're at 442. And, you know, you've, you've also put a lot of time in the organization of Main Street. You were a member of the board, Kevin, mm -hmm. with the Historic Park City Alliance. You embraced the dining decks and were one of the first, you know, restaurants out yep. there on the street. What does Main Street mean to you as far as a location for your business? Well, you know, it, it's, to me, Main Street is the heart and soul of Park City. It's just where I've... Where it all began. It's where I've spent my career with Zoom and Bill White and, uh, and now Shabu for 20 years. Um, I can't see myself dealing with Kimball Junction ever. <laughs> I don't know. I, I live out in that area and, and the uncertainty out there. Um, we know for sure Main Street is going to always rock. We just love it. It's yes. Old Town. You can't beat Old Town. No, and you were born yeah. in PC, so. Yep. That's right. Very nice, very nice. Well, again, for those that don't know much about Chabu, tell them where they can find you and where you're located. Sure. We're at 442 Main Street, right next to the post office. Um, ShabuParkCity.com is our menus and uh, where you can make reservations. And uh, there's still some room left. <laughs> if you want to book a couple weeks out. Hit the website and make a reservation. And hours and days of operation. And will you be doing lunch this summer? We will be doing lunch this summer. Um, noon to four, something like that, on the deck. Um, uh, and Come on the back out. patio. And the back patio is oh, great. Yeah. Yes. And, and, and winter hours. What, what days do you open in the winter? Five till nine. Days? Every day of the Every week. Every day. Seven Every days. day of the okay, week, yeah. all right. You can find them right next to the post office at 442 Main Street. Bob. And across from KPCW. Oh, yes. <laughs> Back doors. Yeah. Um, Bob, Kevin, Valika. Thank you. Thank you so much. Congratulations. Shabu. We want to thank year. Park City. Thanks, you guys. Thanks for the gratitude. Thanks for listening. If you enjoy the show, make sure you leave a review no matter how you listen. And we'd appreciate it if you clicked five stars.